This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals. The series now in operation is dealing with redemption and atonement, is number five of that series and will be particularly concerned with the Day of Atonement. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of Scripture together. So those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read with us both Psalms 32 and 51. In our last study, we were looking at the Jubilee, the great day of deliverance, and among other things, our attention was drawn to the repeated words, he shall go out free, going out free. It is called the year of release. It is called the year of liberty. It is called the acceptable year. It is the jubilee. Well now, one of the statements concerning the jubilee demands our attention this evening. For it's all very well to be jubilant, but it's even better to have a basis for that jubilee. It's all very well to be shouting for joy, uh, but you want to have the real thing to shout about. So that jubilee, like forgiveness, like the peace of God, like justification, like salvation, must rest upon the finished work of Christ. It's an old, old story, which is ever new, and one that we must sound out until the day comes when we stand in his presence. For there's no blessing that's revealed in Scripture, whether you're kingdom or church, Jew or Gentile, whether you're on earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, or far above all, Christ, in one or of his or other of his sacrificial aspects, will be there as the guarantee and the only one who makes it possible. So I'm going to read from Leviticus 25, the passage that was before us last time, just to insist a little bit more on one particular clause. Verses 8, 9 and 10. This is to overlap with regard to the Jubilee. Leviticus 25, 8, 9 and 10. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land, and ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land, unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Now the seventh month, is really the end of Israel's festival year. So that if this is based upon the Day of Atonement, which takes place on the tenth day of the month, well, there's not very much time left to enjoy a jubilee if it's going to be within the limits of the 49 years. The 49 years are now up, and the year that follows is the jubilee. So in a measure, it's quite right where the question was raised and I had no direct answer to it at first. But why was it that the Jubilee didn't take place in the 49th year? Well, one of the reasons seems to be 
that here we've got a complete cycle of time, seven times seven, and we reach almost the end of that year, and then when the Day of Atonement comes, the next year can be the Jubilee. So there are two things to be seen, not merely the Jubilee. There's the Day of Atonement that must precede it. And if we forget the one, we might as well forget the other. For there'll be no release, no forgiveness, no rejoicing, if there's no atoning work that has made it all possible with a just and holy God. So now, we'll turn a few pages back in this book of Leviticus, and we come to the actual passage which deals with the Day of Atonement. This is chapter 16. I think we must read a few verses to make sure that we understand the context. Chapter 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. So this is a, a, a question of access into the presence of God. He come not at all times. There was a bit of an unholy familiarity about it, and God was going to put a stop to that. While we have boldness of access, according to Ephesians, we must remember what a privilege it is, what a blood-bought privilege it is, lest our boldness be misconstrued. Well then, we have the appointment of what is to be done on the Day of Atonement, and it says in verse 7, he shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the, con- of the tabernacle of the congregation. In verse 5, these are, are described as two kids of the goats for a sin offering. So here we have the two goats. And in verse 8, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Uh, that appears to be uh, an old English way of speaking of an escape goat. It's become now a limited word. You put the blame upon somebody else, and so in a measure you escape it yourself. But this is an escape goat. So you say, whatever's an escape goat? Well, that's a part of our duty this evening to try to make it speak presently. Well then, after the one goat has been chosen and offered as an atonement, the other goat, verse 10, which is called the scapegoat, is presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness and he's taken away and after the confession of sins is made upon him he takes them right away into the wilderness. Well now, we want to try to get as far as we can the meaning of this wonderful type which I'd expect types and shadows they never can approach the reality And even though we approach the reality, we have no language, we have no understanding to be able to interpret it aright, so we are thankful for the pictures that help us. Now in the first case, I want to leave Leviticus 16 in order that we may have some understanding of the word we are using. Atonement. First of all, we'll go to Romans, the fifth chapter, to settle one point there. Romans, the fifth chapter. And I'm sure I don't have to apologise to you for turning to passages of Scripture. 
when you think of what we are dealing with, the offering of the Son of God, no pains can be spared. Now it says in verse 11 of Romans 5, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Well, I hope, friends, you are so far instructed in Scripture that you know that's wrong. You do not receive the atonement. Not in the Old Testament sense. That atonement was offered to God on your account. But you say it says so here. Oh yes, I'm not saying they're wrong. I say we should be wrong unless we have an intelligent use of the word. If you look back at verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And if we were reading the revised version, we should read, we have now received the reconciliation. Because it's precisely the same word as the word reconciliation in the preceding verse. So, the authorised version translators knew quite well that this one Greek word could be translated reconciliation. Why did they make the one change in the whole of the New Testament and put the word atonement in? Why, because they were speaking the language of the people at the very time. There's a writer, about the same time as this was first written, his name was Philpot, and he says, what atonement is there between light and darkness? Well, would you say that? What atonement is there between light and darkness? He says, what do you mean? Well, he says, don't you know what the word at one means? Yes, it means to reconcile, doesn't it? That's all, you see, it's an Old Testament uh, an old English word that is now dropped out of use. Wycliffe uses the word one-ment. I've never heard anybody use one-ment of you. It's dropped out, but it's, a, it's an old English word. And instead of one-ment and atonement in the New Testament, they've adopted mainly the word reconciliation, which is all the same. If we go into Shakespeare, I've got about four passages, I won't burden you with them, here's one. He desires to make atonement between the Duke of Gloucester and your brother. Well, he wasn't going to offer any sacrifice, he was going to try to bring them together. At one. Now, we receive the at one moment, but the pity of it is, the mind goes back to the Old Testament and says, we receive that sacrifice. No, you receive the result of the sacrifice. So that's all there is to that. Now we come to the Old Testament for the first occurrence of the word translated atonement, in the Old Testament, Genesis 6. We must start here, friends, and then go on. Genesis 6 says to do with a flood in the days of Noah. And verse 14 gives us this specification. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Here we have the word kafar, and its variants, whether noun or verb, kaphar. Thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Uh, the New Testament word capernaum includes the word which is given here for pitch. But it's nothing to do with tarring their roofs. By the time it reached the New Testament, it was a covering place and meant a little village. And so you'll find the derivation of words and their usage gradually changes. <coughs> Now the next occurrence of this word, the next occurrence of this word in Genesis is found in, um, the, I think it's the 17th chapter, I'm not sure for the, for the moment.
No, but just wait a minute. I've, got to, I've just got to find this. The next occurrence, I'll leave you to find it because I don't want to waste time with these wheels going round. But um, it's the occasion when <coughs> Jacob is now going back to meet his brother Esau after the long interval. And he's very concerned because of his brother. What's he going to do? So he sends over flocks and he says, Oh, they're for you, my brother. And he says, Perhaps I will appease him. I will appease him. Now, in between those two references in the book of Genesis, between Genesis 6 and the passage later on in Genesis where Jacob... 32, thank you, that's good. I was hoping somebody would rise to it. 32. All right, now we get it for ourselves then. I just forgot to put that down and I couldn't find it in the hurry. Verse 20. And say ye moreover, behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with a present that goeth before me. And afterward I will see his face. I will appease him. Now a literalist could say, no, 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 no. That means I'm going to spread pitch all over his face. I don't think that would have appeased Esau. And a person who talks like that is just a danger. In between these two references of Genesis 6 and Genesis 32 came the Tower of Babel with a confusion of tongues. And here's a fact that never throughout the whole of the rest of the Bible is the word Cathar ever used to cover. Now the next thing is, it is definitely said in the Scriptures. We read it in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sin is Transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. And it's quoted again by Paul without reservation in the New. So sins are covered. But the particular word that could have been used for covering is never so translated. It's always translated to appease or to uh, be the sum of money that purchases it or makes a ransom or all the various features. So I think we'd better go on and get this word a little bit more uh, in our minds. In the 17th chapter of Leviticus, verse 11, we read these words. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. That's the word that was used by Noah to put the pitch on the ark and that's the word used of Jacob to appease his brother's face to make an atonement so we've got the word in the Old Testament now this word just in another form gives us the mercy seat in the tabernacle the mercy seat and there it was that the blood of the atoning animal was taken right in by the high priest who went there only once a year once a year only and put it there, and there it remained for the whole year as an indication that atonement had been made and accepted. Now I think we ought to get one or two other references to help us to qualify this. I'm still dealing with the one word which is translated atonement. Exodus 21.30 Of course, you could do all this yourselves, but it takes time, and the chances are you would never do it enough to make sure. So we're doing it now. 
Exodus 21.30. This has to do with a man who had a dangerous animal and it's as if they be laid on him a sum of money because this ox has killed a man. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him. You see? 21.30. He's been condemned to death. Verse 29. The ox shall be stoned and his owner also shall be put to death. But it can be transmuted. If they so judge that it should be, they can say instead of you dying, you pay a ransom. Here's the atonement money. Here's the beginning of the idea that you should die, but somebody else may pay the price, and you go free. Let's see it again in chapter 30, verse 12. Exodus 30, verse 12. When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul. A ransom. And once more, in 1 Samuel 12, 3. 1 Samuel 12, 3. Halfway through the verse 3. Or of whose hand have I received any bribe to blind mine eyes therewith? That word bribe is an atonement. The sum of money to buy you. In a wrong sense, but still it's got the same thought in it. Purchasing something for your own benefit, but doing it wrongly. Well now, with that, we must come back to our Leviticus 16, where the Day of Atonement is actually before us. Let's carry with us these thoughts, that we are dealing with this great work of Christ, symbolised by atonement, and set forth in this figure, this great day. Now, first of all, you will notice on this chart, underneath this goat that is symbolized there, a peculiar word, the scapegoat for Azazel. That is to say that in the original, instead of reading uh, in verse 8, the scapegoat, there are some who lift the word out and put it as a proper name. I notice that... Um, Moffat, he translated the demon. Uh, I think he was rather addicted to the idea that this was a lot of superstition, although he translated it. And these Jews, they offered one goat to the Lord, and then because they wanted to be on the safe side, they offered another goat to the devil, the demon. And that's been all laboriously uh, interpreted. And there are some people who have gone to the extreme, because today we speak about a ransom, when somebody's captured by the other side, uh, they demand a ransom to set them free. And they say, well, who captured us? The devil. Oh, well, then Christ offered himself a sacrifice to sin to the devil. Horrible thought, isn't it? That's because we get run away with these types and shadows. But the word of Azel. Oh, and then the, uh, the, uh, the word there, you see, I've got Azazel, Satan. But under the letter three, the word is built up of two words, quite obvious to anyone who can read them in the Hebrew. Az is the word for goat, which comes in Leviticus 16, comes in Exodus 12. 
Oh, and by the way, that reminds me of a point I was mentioning before the meeting in conversation. Our use of the word lamb is limited to sheep. And we always think of the Passover lamb as of a part of the flock of sheep. But the specification in Exodus for the Passover is you shall take this lamb from the sheep or the goats. Now that's got to be remembered. It's no good us saying, oh, they're wrong. It's we that have altered it. And then I think it has a bearing upon another passage which you do well to treat carefully. In Matthew 25, when the Lord sits upon the throne of his glory and all the nations are gathered before him, he gathers the nations as a shepherd gathers his sheep and his goats. They both belong to him. He's separating the sheep from the goats, certainly. And the sheep go in and the goats stay out. But it doesn't follow that they're all condemned because of some of the words that he used which will be another subject and have to be postponed a long time yet. But you see, the goat is essentially an animal for sacrifice. On practically the same level as the lamb uh, of the Passover if it were taken from the flock. So now we've got the word as meaning a goat. And the word azul is simply the verb to go. So here we are back again. Instead of offering to a demon, which is a mere imagination, we just let it be and don't make it into a proper noun at all, and we say, this is a goat for the release. Why do you say that's what the jubilee? Of course, the jubilee was announced and based upon the tenth day of the seventh month, this very day, when the Day of Atonement was offered, and the man who spoke the words which are written here would say, the Jubilee is the day when you go out free, and the goat is the goat for the going out. It was visible in front of their eye that the Jubilee itself was based upon the atoning work that was specified there, the goat for going out. Of course, if a person says, well, I don't know what you mean by going out, say, well, fool you, because that's the whole thing, it's a release from captivity and bondage and all the things that they were suffering, they were going out free. And they saw that goat being led away into the wilderness, taking the sins that were confessed over it and never coming back again. What a picture. What an example for us to remember when we're speaking on this great subject. Well then, one of the things that I think we should always do, if we have the ability, if we can turn to the Septuagint Greek version of the Old Testament, always check up on the way in which they translated it. Because after all said and done, however clever we may be today, you would expect that those who were translating their own scriptures out of their own language into Greek would at least know as much about it as, well, shall I say, as I do, to be very modest. Wouldn't you? Well, when I look at that word, as it is, look, Apo Pompeius. Well, Apo means away from. If you don't know much Greek, you know that. Apo. And Pempo means to send. Over and over again in the New Testament. So this is the goat for the sending away. So right the way down, 300 years before Christ, anybody could read that the Day of Atonement was there the goat for the sending away. Sending away of what? Oh, well... There are many references to the way in which sin is dealt with in that way to be sent away. But before we go into that, let's look at one or two other things. 
It says in verse, um, now what is it, verse 10, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive. Now if you turn back to the 14th chapter, you'll see that this sort of way of symbolizing the work of Christ has been done before. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest, and if he has leprosy, then they take two birds, verse 4, alive. And one of them is killed, and the other is associated with it by being dipped in the blood of the one that's killed and let go free. You say, why do it that way? Well, God was perfectly able to perform a miracle every time they offered a sacrifice. But God himself doesn't perform miracles unnecessarily. There's no need that there should be a miracle every time the sacrifice is offered that he should first of all die and then rise again. All that he did was to act two. One died, the other was identified with it, and that was set free. And there was the symbol, the two representing the one offering. So here we have two goats, and one is put to death because it's to be an atonement. And when that is finished, the other goat, it says in verse um, 15, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. And when that is over, then this other goat, uh, the scapegoat, is taken uh, further down, or first of all, get the, what, is, what is to be done. Verse 20, And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, so the the work of atonement has now been done. When he makes an end of reconciling. You see, we already found that the word atonement involves the word reconciling. Here it is in the Old Testament. So, whatever was accomplished by that one offering was complete. Well, why did they have two? Why? Because this is now going to show you the results of it. And when he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, and the tabernacles of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Now what's he do with this one? And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and he shall send him away. Here it is again. The goat that is being sent away. He shall send him away, by the hand of a man who is standing ready, a fit man, into the wilderness. And he shall, the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities, unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let the goat, he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So this goat goes away. It's not put to death, just sent away into a land that is not inhabited. Well now when you begin to go into this matter you say you see what happened to the second goat Aaron laid his hands upon and confessed wasn't that the wasn't that the secret of Psalm 32 and 51 I think we better go back to Psalm 32 and 51 because we may miss this point if we don't Psalm 32 
Both Psalms refer to David. Both refer to the same thing. The sin into which David fell and the long drawn out period before he confessed. He starts with the words, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then, he says in verse 3, When I kept silence, my bones waxed hold through my roaring all the day long. When I kept silence. And then Selah comes at the end of the next verse, and that generally means, now after you've looked at that, you look at this. You see what a state I was in because I did not confess. He says, I acknowledged my sin. In another part of scripture, the Lord says to Israel, only acknowledge your transgressions. Only acknowledge. And although we may have the first goat offered and the sacrifice accepted, we don't enter into the peace of it if we willfully stand away and fail in the confession side. That's where David was. God was as ready to forgive David at the beginning of the year as he was at the end of the year, but David had a wretched time of it because he did not confess. But then he said, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. You notice the play on the words cover. Verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But the proverb says, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But it's that's contradictory. Oh no. It depends who's doing the covering. Go to the Garden of Eden. Our first parents covered themselves. That was wrong. And the Lord covered them and that was right. It depends on who does it and why. If you cover up your sin, you'll not prosper, says the proverb. But blessed is the man whose sins are covered by God. For whatever God does is righteous and holy. So when our first parents covered themselves, they just stitched together fig leaves. And God stripped them off. What did God use when he made a covering? Well, he gave them coats made of skins. And unless there was some absurd miracle, a sacrifice was offered in the Garden of Eden. They were still covered, but not covered up. Because you've seen the word for atonement means a ransom price, a compensation, a satisfaction, a work done that makes it perfectly right and true for a holy God to accept us and forgive us and to give us access. And then not only so, he says, Mine iniquity have I not hid. Thou hast covered it. I have not hid it. And further in verse 7, Thou art my hiding place. Oh, God knows we have a tendency to cover up. But he said, Don't go the wrong way. Nearly all false gospels are covering up sin. And all true gospel is providing God's covering at the cost of the precious blood of Christ. All the difference between life and death between discerning between one covering and another. And we'll go once more to 51, Psalm 51, because you'll find that he's there again on this question of acknowledging. Verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin 
is ever before me. He says in verse 9, hide thy face from my sins. But he no longer says, I'm going to hide them, I'm going to confess them and acknowledge them, and that he entered in once more into peace and relationship with God. Well now do I remind you of the first epistle of John. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, and if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and we make ourselves liars. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you see, the Day of Atonement has two, not one aspect. They're both there. It's right for us when we're preaching and when we're teaching and when we're thinking to meditate long and deeply on the work of the cross of Christ. And then if you never go to the other side, you've only preached it in its half measures. You've given the remedy, but you haven't shown how it is to be taken. Now you go the other way and say, that's yours. But God can deal with no one who refuses to acknowledge and refuses to confess and refuses to admit. We have to do that with children and we have to do that with older ones too. You put it to a person and say, well now, we don't want to penalise you, but you must admit this. Otherwise we can do nothing. And if they say, well, I'm not going to acknowledge that, well, the door is shut. So with us. We don't have to confess in a confessional. The only confessional we acknowledge is there, where Christ is. But it must be done. If you're ever going to enter into peace, restore unto me, he said, the joy of thy salvation. And then he was going on to teach others the way. Well, now, with regard to this, um, uh, this, um, scapegoat who's going into the wilderness and taking it to a land uninhibited, should we turn to one or two other scriptures that are almost sure of coming to your mind? The prophet Micah. Now you say, oh dear, he's one of these minor prophets. But you see, I've got a well-trained Bible. It's opened as I touched it. I didn't know where to find it, but here it is. Micah. It takes a little time to train your Bible like that, of course. Micah 7, verse 18 and 19. I suppose somebody will be listening to say, who's he poking at now? Micah seven eighteen, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, that passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. For when you read that if you take the wings of the morning and fly to the ends of the earth, you'll find God waiting for you there. And though you make your bed in hell, you'll find God there. Where would you go and God is not there? And yet it says in this figure, which is understandable, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That was for our comfort. That is to say, all their God. Shall we find another one in Isaiah? Of course, you won't need any help to find the prophet Isaiah. 38.17 He says, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul 
delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. When well, again the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Makes me think of my old mother. She said, I need eyes in the back of the head with you. I've heard her say that many a time and I was one of the ringleaders of that faction. But when I think of God, how can I escape his eye? The eyes of the Lord in every place, beholding the evil and the good, but yet he condescends to use the figure of gain that he has cast all our sins behind his back. And you can go on, he has blotted them out like a thick cloud. So that's the figure of the second goat on the Day of Atonement. The first one makes the atonement. The second one is the one that bears the confession and he goes away into a wilderness. You've lost it. He's gone. He's out. He's the one who's saying, look at me. The release. The jubilee basis. The going out. Finish. Two sides of one glorious and blessed truth. Now let's just look at the chart and see whether there's anything that we've missed that needs some sort of uh, word. I've already drawn your attention in earlier studies. Uh, we're halfway down here when it says, let go free. Again, you have that uh, equivalent word in the Old Testament brought over into the New, when we have in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins is to let this go free. The forgiveness of sins is delivering you from the bondage of guilt and condemnation. You're let go free. And so we've got that emphasis again. And um, we get, as I've already referred to these other passages, the um, casting into the sea and delivering and putting them behind his back, all these emphasise the one great offering of Christ. And now just to conclude, we look at Hebrews 9, 7 to 11, because without referring to that, we are bypassing an inspired comment. Hebrews 9, 7 to 11. He speaks about the tabernacle in service and says, but into the second, that is to the innermost uh, part of the tabernacle, went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood which is offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signify. Well, if I believe that, I cannot possibly believe a modern exposition which tells me there was no tabernacle ever built in the wilderness. It was an invention of the priests afterwards. It says the Holy Ghost signified something. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining the conscience which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Now we're coming to a reference that will bear upon this day of atonement. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, a greater by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an ephah sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, 
How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What a commentary. What a passage to weigh over word by word and passage by passage and sentence by sentence. Here is the contrast between all those sacrifices that touched only the external, the flesh, but they were pictures, valuable pictures. But Christ's atoning work touches the conscience. The Day of Atonement came round every year, was repeated every year. But my Day of Atonement has never been repeated and never will. For I read concerning the real offering of Christ, that it says, For by one offering, by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, finished, done with, never to be repeated. Well now I felt that it was not possible for me to emphasise as I did last week the blessings of the Jubilee and forget that the basis was the Jubilee goat. The goat that died and the goat that went out free was telling those people there's no Jubilee for you. And he's telling us tonight and anyone who listens to this there's no Jubilee for me if I do not know and do not believe and am not associated with the Lord Jesus Christ as the great atoning victim who for my sins died, the just for the unjust, that he may bring me and you to God. So may the Lord grant that this little witness, as we know, is going literally to the ends of the earth, will assure those who listen to it that there is still in the city of London one little weak voice, or does I get a weak voice? Never mind, don't comment on that. One voice that is still crying like a voice sometimes in the wilderness. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away, taketh away the sin of the world.